are listening to the Elephant in the Room podcast with your host, Sutta Singh. Each week, we will bring you a diverse range of inspiring speakers on issues of inequality and inequity. You will hear stories about fairness, justice, belonging, and about best practice for creating a more inclusive workplace. So, if you are an individual or leader interested in a fairer, equitable, compassionate society and workplace, this podcast is for you. My guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast this week is Ricky Ford, Senior Director, EMEA, Diversity, Inclusion and Belonging. Good afternoon, Ricky. Thank you for being a guest the Elephant in the Room podcast today. And let's get started with the questions. Could you give us a quick introduction to who you are and tell us a bit about your journey so far? Certainly. So I'm Ricky Ford. I'm a man of color, married with two children. I started off in technology. I got a computer science and maths degree. I spent about 15 years in technology before making a career transition. In my early 30s, I changed and moved from technology organization to HR consulting, Hay Group, Hayes Pay, and then on to Arthur Anderson before the Enron demise a year later, unconnected, I might add, to Deloitte and then small and medium-sized consulting firms before going in-house and heading up talent development across EMEA for S&P Global. That's kind of my main permanent role before this one. Wow. It's been very interesting. <laughs> As you said, you've shifted careers. So mm. now you are the EMEA DNI Talent Culture and Org Development Lead at FTI. What does your job entail? It's a really good question. I'm two years in now and it's year end, so I do kind of reflect on what it is. So yes, yeah, so I joined in lockdown September 2020. Just after George Floyd, I do believe if that major world event hadn't occurred and the murder of others, I wouldn't have got this job. And they may not have even had a DNI function here at FTI because this was the first time they had one. It was back in September 2020, set up a whole new team. So my job, and they realised, I think, and I hope certainly in Emir, that what they needed was not a DNI expert i.e. someone who had done DNI roles very narrowly and specifically for the last 10, 15 years, but actually a culture change expert, which of course is my background from the different jobs that I've had in fee-paying consultancy and then heading up talent development in-house at SMP Global for seven years. So my key role is around influencing and developing and redeveloping and improving the culture, focusing in three areas. First, my corporate function colleagues. So my human resources colleagues, talent development, corporate citizenship and communication. So marketing and communications, internal communications. Then we've got the leadership teams. So obviously run the organization, they run the business. So my work with them, getting buy-in with our executive committee to the major strategy for DNI. And thirdly, my diversity champions. So all of my employee resource groups, each of my businesses have got diversity champions and we have office champions as well. So across EMEA, we have probably 12, 13 offices outside of London. Each of them have got diversity champions. And so quite a matrix world. And as you said at the start that we'd probably not be on this journey if Black Lives Matter hadn't happened and unfortunately the tragic death of George Floyd. So across the world, those were the seismic events that saw the push 
and saw DEI gain momentum. But the attention seems to be waning. And we've seen research in the last year, which shows that there's a sense of fatigue. Would you agree with that? And if you would, why do you think that is? I would agree with it, but I think it's no different to any other uh, seismic event or if you call it a burning platform, which is sometimes the catalyst for change. Once everyone has come out of crisis mode, your ship is sinking, what do we do? It refloats or everybody gets off and you move on to another part of the journey. So I think that's quite natural, particularly two years in, 18 months in, for there to be some waning of or change fatigue. I mean, there's also multiple priorities. I mean, who had predicted two years ago that we wouldn't have a war in the Ukraine, the pandemic, global changes around energy prices, the cost of living. So there are lots of things which employs a great resignation. There are a lot of things that are on leaders' minds and the minds of those in corporate functions like HR. So it's no wonder that things may have waned. But I always have the principle of re-energizing us around the language that the business talks. Because I see culture change. 101 is treating it like a business process. So for instance, we have a sales process. And if we were to change that sales process, every leader would know what the new sales process is. Because if we don't sell consultancy, we are a medium-sized consultancy firm. We die because it's the bedrock of the company. Every leader across the organization, from the most senior leader to the most junior line manager, would know what the new sales process is. And every employee would also understand or at least be aware of that. And it would be rolled out from the executive committee all the way down each of the businesses to each country and each leader. And if we don't do that with our change processes and reinvigorate them, then they will naturally die or wane. True. You've already mentioned some of the things that are happening in the world because that's what I was going to segue into. Mm. The global uncertainty with war, economic slowdown, recession is not helping the cause for equity and inclusion All of these things are going to, in some way, sort of slow down that progress. What can organizations do to reduce disproportionate impact on previously disadvantaged or underrepresented groups? Because when you talk about recession and you talk about layoffs, the easiest people are those people who are lower pay grades, which would be Black and other ethnic minority groups, women, etc. I tie the answer back to my last answer, really which is around the fatigue and waning, uh, started to talk about what's important to the business. So for instance, we have growth plans because we do a lot of consulting in chaos and change and disruption, mergers, acquisitions. So what's important to the business if you're growing, for example, you can't grow if you're losing your most prized possessions, which would be your talented staff and particularly people who are diverse. It's a really small talent pool. So everything, I don't have any big strategies really around this is it you should be more inclusive because it's the right thing to do we should have a more diverse workforce because it's no i tie it to their business goals their business imperatives as much as possible and what's important to their clients so their clients are often asking us how can you consult with us if you're not diverse yourself. I mean, so you're consulting with us, you have to get your own house in order. We have an ESG proposition, for example. So the S in sustainability has diversity and inclusion in it. So there's a lot of things that can be done. It's not easy to tie in that. The other thing is what gets measured gets improved. So 
we started a long time ago before I joined on very good analytics around people, gaining trust in surveys around people's backgrounds, their ethnicities, their sexual orientation now. So we have excellent data. So I have dashboards that I can put in front of my change champions, put in front of yeah. leaders around engagement surveys and slice that importantly by diverse members of our firm. So in other words, it's one thing asking the question, do you feel this is a place that you belong or do you feel this is an inclusive place to work of everybody? My numbers might be up there in 80% plus. But then when you dissect those results by women or people of colour and so on, then you look at the differences between those two groups. That's going to tell you whether the people who might be disadvantaged feel the same way as everybody else. True. So what gets measured gets improved and trying to tie our change journey against not just data oriented, but I believe the engagement data is one piece of data we should be looking at is do people feel they belong? If we get everything else right, if we have a diverse firm, we're inclusive, it's diverse more at the top than it was previously, because I, I believe most firms yeah. are diverse these days, but not in the senior levels. And if I ask leaders, do you think we're succeeding? And they say yes. And I ask HR, what do you think, how we're doing? I have my own impression about how we're doing, but that doesn't really matter. It's the staff. If they say, I feel like I belong here and I can bring my full self to work, that's what counts. True. So kind of a long answer to a question around no, you did explain it. Those, those disproportionate groups. It's asking them the question, asking everybody the question, but focusing the results on what they say. Yeah, not deciding what the outcome is yourself, right? No, no. <laughs> yeah, moving on. So we've had BAME, BME, POC, Global Majority, DEI, DEIB, DEIB. <laughs> How much attention should we pay paying to the acronyms? Because I know it becomes quite fraught sometimes. Does it take attention away from the bigger task at hand or is it an essential building block if one is to start on their journey of inclusion? I think we should pay attention to it because I think language matters and I think our language should reflect the frame of reference of the person you're referring to and the people you're referring to. So by that I mean, and we've got a very good example here in our own organisation, so our BAME network was actually been called when I arrived in 2020, that it was already here. So Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic Network. And that is really a government label. Now, many of the criticisms of BAME have been that it lobs everybody together. Well, here in EMEA, we have two and a half thousand staff. So there aren't enough ethnic minorities for them to have a Black network, an Asian network and so on. So they actually naturally fell together to be stronger. Yeah. So there's about 80 members of staff who are in what was the BAME network. And they said, look, we've had enough of this label being given to us by the government and used in the census. We want to rebrand. So I helped work them over the last six months to rebrand. And they're now called RISE, which stands for Racial Identity and Social Equity. Now, I could have dismissed them and said, well, does it really matter? It's a convenient term. You're all together. You're not in separate groups. But I could see it was important to them. So we spent the time redeveloping their vision and mission, getting them a nice on-brand logo, enable them to, just before Black History Month in September, push out the new brand. The timing was good and everything. So I think it really does matter. And I think it depends on what the people really want to be called or the group wants to be called. So listening, really. Yeah, Ricky, Ricky, I think that was really important what you said, because often I think even for us, I work in the industry level, yeah. 
And sometimes because you want to include or listen to everyone, you say, okay, I'm okay with what you're saying as long as we move ahead. But as you mentioned, I think the framework of reference, who are you talking about? And also listening to people and allowing them that opportunity to define for themselves. I think that is very, very critical. And rice sounds phenomenal, actually. It makes so much sense. (laughs) It does. And it's the actual, the eye has got an arrow. Yeah. A multicolored arrow pointing upwards. It's part of this kind of rise and it's part of the, I'm trying to think of the book by Doreen Lawrence. I think it's Still We Rise. And I know Serena Williams mentions that in some of her uh, videos, etc. You reminded me actually, the transition from BAME to Rise wasn't an instant one. So it took several months of negotiation, discussion. They had to sort out themselves and have to get something that's meaningful. But actually, the biggest thing we did during that time period was no longer refer to them as BAME. Whenever we use the word or I use the word, I spelt out the acronym completely. So Black, Asian, Minority, Ethnic. Yeah. So it's no longer an acronym. This is a description of the yeah. group. And I think that kind of helps because what's more annoying, you tell people you don't like this term and then you keep using it. Even though there's several months of change journey to change it, I think yeah. it's respectful. And we agreed that even in emails, we would spell it out in that interim period rather than be lazy. And of course, occasionally you'd forget either verbally or in an yeah. email, and you would just apologize, put your hand up, because it's a change for everyone when you've been used to using yeah. a term for so long. Yeah, that's so true. It's a great example, and I think a lesson learned for me too. Moving on, so taking into consideration the reality that we work in an industry that is famous for groupism and lack of diversity, mm-hmm. how important is fair pay and equitable hiring practices to building an inclusive workplace. Some people will say do one or the other. And I think that one that they tend to do is to do that representation hiring where they try to get people of color into the organization and they don't take into consideration the fair pay, I would say. What is your view on this? I think you have to get it all fixed. (laughs) You have to get it all right from entry level into the firm. So we're kind of just realizing it as well. From a hiring perspective, there's lots of research out there that people who are diverse, typically, I'm generalizing now, so apologies for that, women, people of color to different degrees, may not negotiate as regularly or as hard as people who are represented, whatever that represented group is. So in other words, they may ask, they may look at their own salary that they're on now. And when they join this, they'll have a picture in their mind that it's 30% more of what they're on. And they'll just give that figure. That's what they want to stick to. Whereas a person of color might say, you've offered me a salary. It's 5% more than I'm on. I'm happy. Or 10% more than I'm on. I'm happy. I'm not going to go there and start negotiating. I'm happy. But that 10% is not really what the role is worth. No. We know what the role is worth. We know if there's any play. So being fair to them, because what happens is and can happen is people then join. So the two people join, people talk about salary, they talk about bonuses, and you suddenly find you're 10, 15,000 away from that person. And you can see, actually, I've got more experience than that person or these other people in the firm. And what happens? They end up leaving very angry and you've wasted an opportunity of investing in that person. And that person's invested in you. So we're really trying to watch the levels at which we make offers. So rather than asking people what their salary is and then thinking, well, we're giving 10% more than that. Actually saying in the US, we're having to do this anyway, very soon, publishing salaries with jobs. So we're now thinking here in EMEA that actually, you know what, we should start to do the same, even if we're not going to the level of publishing, but at least communicating the salary for the job, which cuts out some of this, or it's the value for the job rather than the value 
that the person perceives. Yeah. So that's one thing. Another thing I would say is the perception of pay and processes. And I ran a process just recently on employee engagement survey, and I sliced one of these questions around equity in pay. And this lady was uh, HR business partner was shocked when she said, I can't believe 40% of the people think we do not have fair pay practices. Because I know it's a very systematic process and lots of people are paid the same at the same level. And I said, well, the perception is different. So what do you think you need to do? She said, well, we need to explain the process and show the process. I said, exactly. So until you close that gap between perception and reality, and there's a vacuum of communication, the vacuum will be filled by words. People will talk and then suddenly you've got a pay gap perception where perhaps there isn't one. So I think working on fair pay and the transparency of the process for allocating pay and bonuses, let's include that in there, is really, really important. People like us have a lot of stress around when you are going into a job, stress around how you're going to negotiate or not negotiate on the yeah. And that stress is pretty unnecessary, but a huge way. <laughs> so I think that would get taken away if there is some transparency, like you mentioned. Yes. Uh, there is pay parity and fair pay, but people have this perception. So bridging that gap is also very important. So, you know, carrying on from this, I've been talking about fair pay. In some of the research that we saw, there was a Kantar research from last year, and that's the research that spoke about fatigue. And there was another research also that spoke about the same. But it said that most organizations spend most of their mon money or resources on the representation piece, because mm. it seemed to be the easier piece to focus on, on getting the numbers right, increasing your numbers by 10% yeah. or 5% or 15%. And like you said, right at the start, when you were introducing yourself, that it's not just about representation, not just about inclusion. It is also about culture. How do you change that culture? You get the people in, but probably they don't stay because your culture is still not inclusive or doesn't give them that room to grow or to do what they want to do with their career. It's a really difficult one, isn't it? Because the diversity part of kind of diversity, inclusion and belonging is relatively easy at the lower levels, but not at the higher levels. It's that recruiting into the higher levels and making sure you look at the promotion, the ratings. We look at the whole employee life cycle. We're going through year end now. So we're doing calibrations. I'm about to look at any differences between different groups and the ratings that they've received. And that obviously has a feed into promotions. So we'll never get that balance at the top levels, which again, you have more opportunity to earn bonuses. That will help to close the pay gap. So ratings, promotions, opportunities for development and big projects and jobs, we look at that too. So I think looking at the whole employee life cycle is really, really important. So you don't just focus on representation. You look at the means to retention and promotion and career. That's another thing. We're doing quite a lot of mentoring. So giving support. And it's not about fixing people. It's about sometimes leveling up some of the skill set and opportunities that people might not have had. So everything is voluntary. We do to support people who are diverse. Some just say, I don't actually need it or want it because they're well set up, they've got mentors, they've got boards of advisors, they've got sponsors, which is absolutely fine. But for those that don't have that or don't even know where to start, so they've got into the organization, but they don't know how to navigate it. So getting promotion and recognition in one business of ours is very different to another. So we have five main segments. Each of them has their own microculture through acquisition. So actually the best people to mentor them uh, can be the people in their own practice. 
So I think making support very individual is the key to getting that inclusion and belonging right. Like I said before, and you're looking at engagement surveys around what each group says about belonging and whether people feel they can bring their full self to work. And when there are gaps, try and close them with action planning on a quarterly basis. So all of our action planning is done on a quarterly basis. And on an annual basis, we know you said you would do this and sharing that with staff as well. We have town halls for gender pay gap, for example. So the leaders know they will be standing up in front of their own teams, not the UK wide, their own teams, each of those five segments I mentioned. I talk about the UK gender pay gap, but then each of the businesses talks about their own gender pay gap and their own representation challenge and their own belonging gaps or inclusion gaps. And when you share that with staff in a more transparent way and promise to do things differently, we got very bright people. They remember when you said three months ago or six months ago or 12 months ago that you would do X, Y, and Z and you haven't done it or you did it and it failed. So I think that's the first part of the change journey around inclusion is declaration of intent. And I think it's, like you said, people are very smart. They know if an organization is really on its journey or it's just bluffing. And most people know that suddenly everything is not going to change in one day, but they want to see those steps that you're taking to change, to see your intent. We've spoken about organizational culture. How important is cultural intelligence when designing solutions, especially in the world that we live in? And we're talking about hybrid, remote. We are talking about cross-country teams. I don't think they teach (laughs) this at MBA and at grad schools, you know, cultural intelligence, but I think it's very, very critical. What do you think? I think so too. There's a spectrum between individual and local, all the way up to global. And some things need to be global. So we're a USA firm headquartered in Washington, and there are some processes and working practices which need to be global. And people understand it will sound like it's American because we're an American firm. But there are things which, particularly when you start to talk about people rather than business, which needs some adaptations. And I'm aware of that here because UK is the EMEA headquarters and I'm very aware of being London or UK centric. So it has a knock-on effect and I don't want to be like that because each of our countries, Germany is very, very different to England, very different to France, very different to Spain or South Africa or Belgium. You know what I mean? So you get a bit of individuality there. So Europe is not one homogenous group uh, by any stretch of the imagination or Middle East and Africa. So that's the big challenges. I think where it really matters, I think we can give opportunities to tweak. Sometimes we write engagement conduct cards and things like that to talk about work scenarios, be it microaggressions or business behavior. Some of those examples don't really fit if they're American or even British. But I have a selection of about 20 that I use, and many of them are real examples from FTI. So I said, look, we're not going to change the bulk of this workshop, but we'll stick within the main headings. When it comes to these examples, what really makes sense for your country, your office? And there are the real examples that have happened in that office culturally, or they're just things that make a difference. They want to make a point, which is very kind of time bound. We've had some aggression in this area only in the last few weeks. Right, let's have an example on this. So I think that really helps make it specific and meaningful for my stakeholders and the employees or leaders that are going to go through it rather than have something boilerplated and global that's just being rolled out and ticking the box that we've done it. Let's have the impact we intend locally because we've been seen to do something local. People can see it and we can explain, yes, this actually happened last week. Somebody said to someone, I didn't see you as gay. (laughs) 
you know, uh, <laughs> that's the kind of comment. People say, no, that doesn't happen. That happened somewhere in the US. I said, no, this happened in your office in the last few months. That person actually is no longer here. You know what I mean? It's that kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. making it real for them. That makes so much sense. Ricky, what are the trends that you see, the challenges and opportunities for organizations in the short term and the long term towards being more inclusive and building a culture of belonging? Short term, I would say this war for talent, you know, retention, retention, retention. It's a challenge because every time we lose someone who's diverse, they're so much harder to replace. <laughs> In a tight talent market, war for talent is huge for us. But the opportunities for me are there. If we have a decent culture and we look after you know, the employee life cycle that I mentioned, if we're looking after our staff, if we're looking at the employee engagement surveys, where there's gaps, we're closing them, then we can use some of our people who are diverse, people of colour, people who are LGBT or women, to actually be our advocates to attract people to the firm. So in other words, if they're disaffected, they will tell 10 people, you know, on Glassdoor or one of those sites, what a horrible place this is to work. If they're on board, and even if we're having challenges in certain areas, but if they can see that we are making huge efforts to try and close gaps and change, they'll either be neutral, but I'd rather they were positive. And we certainly moved in the last 18 months from quite negative situations to, at the moment, quite a lot of positivity in some of our groups. So I think that's the opportunity, is making your staff at least happy-ish and, and productive. Then they will meaningfully help you recruit and retain others. If you have some offices which have lost all the women or lost all the people of colour, it's very hard to start from scratch almost. Where do you start to add women to the team and they're the only women in the room? You know what I mean? So the retention, retention, retention piece, I think is a huge challenge, but also the opportunity. It's harder to retain, but it's much cheaper, better value to retain your staff and lose them and then have a six month gap while you recruit. And then there's the opportunity for the time when they're not there. And then you've got to try and hold on to them, onboard them. You could be talking nine months of productivity from one FTE, maybe a year for some jobs. True. What is the elephant in the room for you, Ricky? What is that one mm -hmm. thing people are skirting around instead of speaking about openly and that could help us to accelerate the journey to building a fairer industry? I think for me, it's the term unconscious bias and how that leads to microaggressions. Because I've come to the view now that we should really remove the term unconscious bias because we know so much about ourselves that actually we should not be afraid to say, we all have biases and they affect us in different ways and they drive our behavior in different ways. So you then get into the camp, okay, what are my biases rather than show me my unconscious ones? And I believe because unconscious bias drives, or at least biases drive a lot of our behaviors around microaggressions, and they are micro microaggressions through to full on macroaggressions, let's call them, that I think that's one of the things that drives down morale and retention if it's not nipped in the bud. And again, I like to run workshops, not as training. I call them workshops because we get into a, a deep discussion around real examples because training for me around these things, around emotional intelligence things, it sounds like a skill. If I teach you to present better, next day you can present better. It's a skill you learn or type. These are not skills. These are deep-seated traits and roots, so things that may have been in your life or nurtured since you were born or two years old in your at home and at school, primary school. So I think um, these are the elephants in the room that we have to shape and change. And if someone has a bit of awareness, 
then I think the, you're at the first steps of starting to control some of the actions. You might say something, you might think before you say it and not say it or say it in a different way. Yeah, I like that, acknowledging that we all have biases. I know that the UK government has banned all these trainings on unconscious bias. Mm. and I don't think that was really helpful, but better to recognize that you have biases rather than just banning all workshops on unconscious bias. If you had one superpower, Ricky, what would it be? I think I split them into personal and business ones. I think from a personal level, teleporting, I think, just so I could be somewhere immediately. don't like really traveling on holidays. It's the journey I'm not that keen on. So I like to get there. So it would be teleporting. And and I think from a business perspective, I think mind reading from a a very authentic position of positivity, (laughs) not a Machiavellian side. Because I just think it would help so much sometimes, even with the best question and the best patience in the world, actually knowing where someone's coming from is really hard. So uh, yeah. Those would be my two. Wow, superpowers. I love them both. <laughs> and you'd be surprised that there's someone else who said that they'd love to know, read people's mind so that they know where they come from. And also it would waste less time for everyone because sometimes people can be just being polite or just... You know, we, yeah, we read body language, but we get that wrong too. And it's, yeah. we just cut to the chase. Yeah. And we're on the last question. Who or okay. what motivates you and what is on your reading list? Who motivates me? I'm very self-driven, so I motivate myself. And I suppose set my own standards for achievement. So job satisfaction is really important to me and sort of feedback from my stakeholders, my key stakeholders across all walks of my business life. And I think what also motivates me is recognition of the people who have grown or changed to move forward. Because I can see people, some rather long in the tooth and even small changes for those people who are entrenched and they get out of the way to allow change to happen. It really does motivate me that we yeah. can we can change organisations, even if it's in very small. It may take two years to get someone to just uh, kind of, maybe even things like stop being passive aggressive. I normally say, no, come on, we don't need people who are neutral. You're either on the fence or you're off the fence. But sometimes actually moving from someone who might inadvertently or otherwise undermine a a change or a process to actually stop doing that. And then perhaps even step in if they see others doing it. That's the next level. So I think that motivates me that I recognize that and make sure where I can that they get the recognition for it from the CEO or Chief Human Resources Officer. Wow, that's great. What's on my reading list? I've got one business book, which is really quite simple, called Allies. It's got a a number of authors. It's about eight or ten authors. And it's a book that's about screwing up and trying again. Because I think in this world, we try to do too much that is perfect. Yeah. And none of us are perfect. If we were robots, that would be different. We're talking about people here, and I include myself in this. Yeah. So I think this book about allies, much of it is about, and it's published by Dawn Kindersley, it's, it's about making mistakes and authentically apologizing and looking to move forward. It's very easy to apologize and make things worse. Yeah. <laughs> I saw someone yesterday, and this is something that some of our politicians might do, is apologize in case there was offense caused. Yeah. I, I then didn't mean to do it. <laughs> this person would know they have caused offence and the simplest thing to do is just say, I'm really sorry, yeah. apologise. But it's that kind of stuff. It's what would get people to get started as an ally because yeah. you're so worried again about getting it right, not offending anyone. That's right. Second book out of three is Alex Scott. 
how not to be strong. So female footballer, former footballer, now pundit. And we had her come and speak for Black History Month here at FTI. Wonderful. So I'm going to have a go reading her book before she came to speak to us, just before going off to the World Cup. And because uh, uh, she talks about sometimes the strongest thing you can do is show your most vulnerable side to the world. And I believe lots of the greatest leaders in this world, they're not necessarily the tough, macho type of dictatorial leaders. They're the ones that actually show I'm vulnerable in some stage. I don't know everything. So I think how not to be strong. It's really good, really good. Because I think who wouldn't want people who've been through challenges, overcome them through innovation, problem solving, all sorts of struggles. Isn't that what we want in our business? We want people to be resilient and high performers. And many people in this world who've got to that stage, they haven't had the easiest of upbringings. So why wouldn't you want to recruit and retain those people in your organization? So those are kind of two books. I'm going to get both. I know Alex Scott and someone who I admire greatly, but I'm going to go and get the book definitely now. Thank you so much, Ricky, for this very, very interesting conversation. Uh, There's so many follow-up questions that I wanted to ask, but I know time is limited. And we may do a follow-up again afterwards so that we can speak more. I'd be happy to. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us this week on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of your favorite platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, don't forget to write a review and tell your friends. Sign up on the link in the show notes to receive updates on our guest speakers, blogs and events. And don't forget to tune in every Thursday for new episodes.